Amen. If you have a Bible, you want to open up to Genesis chapter 17. Uh, I said this in first service, I'll say it again. It feels really trite at this point to go into my cheesy opening illustration. So I am blowing past that and we're just going to read Genesis 17. How's that sound? If you've got it open in front of you, it's 27 verses long. It says this. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will set up my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell face down and God spoke with him. As for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And you and your future and to you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan, as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. God also said to Abraham, as for you and your offspring after you throughout their generations, you are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring, whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for your wife Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her indeed. I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she will produce nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. Then he laughed and said to himself, can a child be born to a hundred year old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? So Abram said to God, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you. But God said, no, your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him as a permanent covenant for his future offspring. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. I will certainly bless him. I will make him fruitful and will multiply him greatly. He will father 12 tribal leaders and I will make him into a great nation. But I will confirm my covenant with Isaac whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. When he finished talking with him, God withdrew from Abraham. So Abraham took his son Ishmael and those born in his household or purchased every male among the members of Abraham's household and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin on that very day, just as God said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when the flesh of his foreskin was circumcised and his son Ishmael was 13 years old when the flesh of his foreskin was circumcised. On that Same day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his household, whether born in his household or purchased from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is the word of the Lord. God, would you speak to us? God, would you you show us something of who you are through this passage in your word? Would you show us something of who the son is, what he's done for us, and what it is to live in relationship with him? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to work through this this morning through four names. All four names are given by God in this passage. It's the name of Abraham, or Abram, 
Abraham, the name Sarai becomes Sarah, the name of their child will be Isaac, and God introduces himself as El Shaddai. So we're just going to work through those. The first comes in verse 1, and it's God's introduction of himself to Abram. We're told, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am God Almighty. The Hebrew there is El Shaddai. And God Almighty is the historically agreed upon translation of that Hebrew phrase. But the full picture is that there isn't a really precise way to translate that phrase. In fact, where we get God Almighty is actually from the earliest translations of the Hebrew Bible into Greek go with God Almighty. And historically throughout the church, we've stayed with that. Modern attempts at translating those words would be like, God like a mountain or God like a rock or something of that nature. And so when it's hard to pin down the translation, scholars then look at all the uses of a word throughout scripture and try to see how it is or where it is that those are used. So the name of God, El Shaddai, appears 48 times in the Old Testament. 31 of those come from the book of Job. Four of those are in Genesis. This is the first of these. And in the majority of that Name for God appearing in scripture. God is either naming himself or he's being named by someone in relation to the power of God to do something that seems difficult. You can see why Job would be a place where that shows up frequently. And so in the face of the power or the ability of God to do something that seems difficult, he is God almighty. He is capable, powerful, able to do what he has said that he will do. One telling example of this comes from Exodus chapter six. God is talking with Moses, telling him that he will lead the Israelite people out of slavery in Egypt. And so how does God make that assurance to Moses? By telling Moses that, or we're told that he appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. God says, I have heard the groanings of the Israelites. And I've remembered my covenant. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from forced labor and rescue you from your slavery to the Egyptians. The assurance is that he can. He can do that. He's God Almighty. He's capable. He's powerful. He's able. I also love the way that this shows up sort of in the context of Genesis. One of the reasons I I like preaching the way that we do is that we get to see right next to one another, something like Genesis 16 and Genesis 17. So last week, Scott Hickox took us through Genesis 16, and he did such a good job of bringing to the front for us that God is the God who sees Hagar. That in that cultural context and in that moment, Hagar was like, like kind of worthless. She's a servant, she's Egyptian, she's not even Israelite, and yet God sees her and responds to her. And it's this incredibly personal, tender and intimate picture. And now right next to that in Genesis 17, what do we have? God introducing himself as powerful and mighty. And he's both of those things right next to each other. In fact, we've seen that throughout the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter one, by just the power of his spoken word, God creates everything. He is capable and able. Genesis chapter two, he's bending down and pushing breath into Adam's lungs. It's incredibly tender and intimate. In Genesis chapter three, God is big and powerful, mighty and just, so he can judge the sin of Adam and Eve. But what does he do for them before he sends them out of the garden? He makes clothes for them 
so that they're not naked. He's both mighty and powerful, but he's also tender and intimate. And now in Genesis 16 and 17, he's the God who sees this Egyptian servant, Hagar. And in the very next passage, he is God Almighty, capable and powerful and able to bring about his promises. There's kind of like a line of critique about Christianity or the Bible that exists in our world today that, well, it seems like God is one thing in the Old Testament, big and powerful, and sometimes he seems like he's angry and he's in control of everything. But then in the New Testament, he's very different. Jesus is kind and loving and personal and intimate and tender. And if, and if I come into contact with that sort of line of critique, I, I tend to like to say, I'll do you one better. Sometimes he's those two things right next to each other. Like, from one passage to the next, it's not that for two-thirds of the Bible he's one thing, and then he switches, and for a third of the Bible he's another. It's that he has always, ever, only been both of those things infinitely. Tender and personal, mighty and powerful. And we should want him to be both of those things. Why? I would want him to be tender and personal enough to know me and all of my sin and all of my brokenness and that I need to be saved. And I would want him to be mighty and powerful enough to save me. I need him to be both. It's not that I could like jettison one of them. He's tender and personal and intimate and he knows all of my sin and all of my brokenness and all of my yuck. And he looks at it and he says, I wish there was someone who could do something about that. Or he's big and he's powerful enough to do all of these cosmic things and all of these global, worldwide things, but he doesn't give a rip about who I am. I want him to be both. And the early chapters of Genesis have been setting those two things side by side for us just over and over and over again. In Genesis 16, he's El Roy, the God who sees. Turn around in Genesis 17, he's El Shaddai, God Almighty, the God who's powerful, capable, Abel. There's also a time distinction that passes here. It's worth backing up into Genesis chapter 16 to see this. So Genesis chapter 15, or 16, verse 15 says, Hagar gave birth to Abram's son. Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am God Almighty. 13 years have passed between the end of Genesis chapter 16 and the beginning of Genesis chapter 17. Ishmael at this point is a moody, like middle school teenager. If you are a middle school teenager, it's fine. One day you will look back and you will say, man, I was angsty and moody. That's just, it's who you are and we love you and it's like totally fine. But that's Ishmael. It's been 13 years. Think about that 13 year period. Sarah and Abraham come up with this plan whereby in order to achieve God's promises for God, they will have Abraham sleep with Hagar and have a child. That's what God has promised. And so now you spend 13 years wondering, did it work? Like, was it effective? Did we accomplish for God what he said would happen? Or every year that passes, you're thinking this, this wasn't it, but Sarah's not having a child still. And so for 13 years, you just wonder. And the beauty of Genesis 16 and 17 is that God is not distant and unaware or disinterested in the pain and the confusion and the uncertainty of their waiting. He sees it all. He's moved by it. 
And so then how does he introduce himself to Abraham 13 years later when he breaks into the waiting? I'm the God who's able. I'm able to bring about all my promises. So let me clarify those promises for you, Abraham. The same is true for us. God is both El Roy and El Shaddai. And so in all of our seasons of waiting, like whether those are seasons of waiting for a longing in our heart or seasons of of seemingly waiting for God to bring about the promises that scripture lays out for us and that the blood of Jesus has bought for us, God is both the God who sees and the God who is able. He's both El Roy and El Shaddai. The challenge is that he isn't always moved in the way or in the timing that we would want him to be. Second Peter chapter three says, dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord does not delay his promises as some understand delay, but he is patient with you. He sees us in our waiting and our uncertainty and despite our understanding to the contrary, he's not slow. He does not delay. He works right on the time schedule that ultimately matters, which is his, not ours. In doing so, he is patient. And so wouldn't you want the introduction that Abraham gets here? Oh yes, Abram, I see, I've heard your every longing and every question for the last 13 years and now I'm here to remind you that I am the God who is powerful and mighty and able. I can do what I said that I would do. In all of our seasons of waiting, whether for specific longings or for the certainty of God's promises, we have to remember that he is both a God who sees and a God who is able. That's where like our theology has to intersect with our actual lived lives. It can't just be that like we sort of like know and think some things about God, but then we engage with life in a different way. We have to know and think some things about God that impact how it is that we engage with life. And so you will have seasons of difficult, painful, what feels like waiting. And we've got to actually be impacted by the fact that God sees us and hears us and that he is able to bring about either the fulfillment of my heart's desire, even if it's not the way I I think I want that desire answered, or the fulfillment of his promises. And he will do so in his timing. And he's good and he's perfect and he's patient in the midst of that. And the beauty of church, like whether we talk about church and we mean Sunday morning or we talk about church and we mean getting together for our small group or for men's or women's Bible study or in a, just a discipleship or accountability relationship with another follower of Jesus. The beauty of all of that is that we have people to help remind us of these things when it's hard for our heart to remember. And so we get together on Sunday and, and we sing these songs. No enemy can hold you down because there's no body in the grave now. How do we know that God is mighty and powerful and capable and able? Check the tomb. It's empty. And sometimes we're struggling to remember that and we just need the church to sing it over us as a reminder. He's able to do that. Sometimes we feel like we're just totally unseen. Like I'm praying these longings and I'm in the middle of my pain and it's like God does not hear me. He does not know me. He does not see me. He does not care. That's not true. Sometimes we need the church to remind us even of something that our head knows. So he is El Roy, the God who sees. He is El Shaddai, God Almighty. And there's a command here. After introducing himself as God Almighty, he says, live in my presence and be blameless. 
Your translation might say, walk in my presence and be blameless. And the thrust here is not the kind of like moral perfection that we associate with blamelessness. As far as we know, Abram does not have like commands. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. So our head kind of jumps straight to like, oh, well, that would have made it really easy for Abraham. Not, not actually, because the thrust here is more difficult. The command is for Abram to live with like a full integrity and a wholeness before God. To like walk in wholeness before God Almighty. Be whole in my presence is the command. Think back, what did sin do in the garden? It made Adam and Eve want to hide from God in their shame. They eat the fruit, they dive into the bushes when God comes. Now the command to Abraham is walk before me. Don't hide, don't don't have shame and guilt. Live before me, walk before me in a wholeness that comes from our, out of our relationship. That's the command. And that is hard. The entirety of the law was given so that you could see that that is not possible. Reminds me of an interaction that Jesus has with some scribes, Mark chapter 12. One of the scribes approached, and when he heard them, that's Jesus and some religious folks debating, and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked them, what command is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. God is whole. He is one. Be whole in your love for him. That's the call of Abraham here. In response to who God is, walk before him in wholeness. That's not any different for us today. And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus has done that in our place. And so now our walking blamelessly before God is both bound up in him and empowered by him. Name number two, I promise we'll move faster. Verse three, then Abraham fell face down and God spoke with him. As for me, here's my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham for I will make you the father of many nations. Abraham falls down. Abram falls down before the Lord. Why? Well, because he's in the presence of God Almighty and God gives Abram a new name that's a verbal play on words. The Hebrew says that Abram will be called Abraham because he will abhaman. That's how you would read the phrase. Abraham will ab, father, haman, many, goyim, nations. Abram, your name will be abhaman because you will abhaman, goyim. He will be the father of multitudes, many nations. It's not the first time that God has told this to Abraham. We saw it in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, now Genesis 17. But he adds something to it. Verse six, I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you. Keep that in mind. We're gonna come back to it in a moment. Then from verses nine down to 14, God establishes a sign of this covenant that we've been seeing God make with Abraham since Genesis chapter 12. The sign is circumcision. It's not the first covenant sign that we've seen. God gave a covenant sign to Noah after the flood. It was the rainbow. 
And in both cases, the sign is not just for Noah or just for Abraham. The sign is for those who will come after them. So with Noah, humanity for all time will see the rainbow in the sky and be reminded that I have made a promise that I will not destroy the world with a flood ever again. Now with Abraham, it's you will circumcise everyone in your household on the eighth day. And that will happen for all of your generations, Abraham, for all time. And here's the key. That act was supposed to be this, verse 13, permanent reminder in their flesh of this covenant. Not just supposed to be like a thing that they did. Circumcision existed at the time. Other Middle Eastern peoples circumcised. God's infusing that with a particular meaning that when you do this on the eighth day, it's not just an act that you do to a child. It is something that reminds you of our covenant that I, God, am going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to bring nations from you. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who treat you with contempt. I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. And Abraham, you and those who share your faith, your descendants, you're going to walk before me in wholeness. And so the act is supposed to be a reminder of all that God will do while representing not just a physical thing that Abraham does or that Israel does, but a posture of faith and wholeness before the Lord. And the Old Testament makes that really clear. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants and you will love him with your whole heart and your whole soul. Jeremiah chapter four, while the people of Israel are in exile, Jeremiah is calling them back to repentance and here's the way that he does it. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, men of Judah, residents of Jerusalem. The New Testament picks up on this. Paul in Romans chapter two says, for a person is not a Jew who's one outwardly only and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. This covenant sign is supposed to be a reminder to Abraham and all of his descendants of this God who's tender and personal. I will be your God who's powerful and able. I will bring my promises to pass. And it's supposed to be a reminder of their inward commitment to walk before him in faith, dependence, wholeness. In verse 15, we get our third name. God said to Abraham, as for your wife Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her indeed. God tells Abraham that his wife will no longer be called Sarai, but will be called Sarah. And both Sarai and Sarah have the same meaning. The name means princess. Every time I read this account of Sarai's name being changed to Sarah, I'm reminded of an athlete that I coached a number of years ago. Um, her name is Lauren. And she shares this story all the time about when she was a, a young child, she had a little bit of a speech impediment where she said her R's is W's. I'm sure you're familiar with that. People go through that, they work through it. So when she would introduce herself, she would say, my name is Lowen," but people would make fun of her. And so one day she got really fed up with it and at recess she announced in a loud voice, that's it, I'm changing my name to Sawa." God changes Sarai's name to Sarah. That's why I always think of it. And it means princess. And in saying this, God makes 
the uh, second statement about what he's going to do through Sarah. I will bless her indeed, verse 16. I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she will produce nations. Kings of people will come from her. That makes sense, right? Who do princesses give birth to? Kings. Kings of people will come from her. Sarah will not only have children, but she will be the mother of nations and not only nations, but the kings of those nations. And so Abraham falls face down again. Verse 17. But this time he laughs. We think to ourselves, okay, why is he laughing? What's happening here? Is it that he doesn't believe God? But scripture actually interprets this for us. Paul picks it up in Romans chapter four. He's working through what does it mean that uh, Abraham was uh, credited righteousness? What does that mean? And he, he makes a statement in the middle of that. He says, he, Abraham, did not waver in unbelief at God's promise. So whatever happens here when Abraham falls down and laughs, it can't be that he doesn't believe. Paul says he didn't waver in unbelief, but he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able, almighty, to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. God, El Shaddai, says, your wife's name will be Sarah. Kings are gonna come from her. And Abraham, in what must have been an astonished sort of wonder, hits the ground laughing, saying to himself, how can this be? That's what we're told. He said to himself, can a child be born to a 100-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? But underneath that question in his heart must have been a confidence that said, yep, because God is able. He's God Almighty, he's powerful, and he can do it. So then God uh, gets a little suggestion from Abraham, which is what we like to do to God. And so God said to Abraham, what about Ishmael? We already solved this problem, God. He's 13 years old, breaking all of my rules. But God's answer to Abraham, Abraham is that the covenant promise has not and will not change. It will be Sarah who gives birth to Isaac, through whom the covenant promises will be passed. And ultimately, they will come to fruition through his line. And God says, you're going to name that child Isaac, which translates to, he laughed. Theologians love to argue about things. Who laughed? Is it Abraham laughed? Like here in verse 17. Is it that Isaac is going to be like a particularly joyful man who's just giggling all the time? So his name is about him. Is it that God, as he brings these things to pass from his throne, will sort of look down and chuckle at, see what I can do? Like, who is going to laugh? I have no idea. Um, All of the arguments are convincing. (laughs) Everyone is going to laugh, we'll say. What's clear here is that Isaac's name is going to point back to this encounter. And that's the point of all of the names in this passage. God is mighty and able to bring a child from a 90 or a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. Abraham will Abhaman and be the father of many nations. Sarah is a princess through whom kings will come. And Isaac will remind everyone of the seeming impossibility of it all. 
And every time someone uses one of those names or people hear their own, or these people hear their own names, they will be reminded that God is moving everything in one direction, that he is powerful and able to fulfill his promise to bless all the nations of the earth through the child of Abraham and Sarah who will one day give rise to the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And then the end of the chapter tells us that Abraham goes and he does what a person who's trying to live in wholeness before the Lord does. He obeys. We're told in verse 23, so Abraham took his son Ishmael and those born in his household are purchased and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin on that very day, just as God had said to him. Wholeness before God requires obedience. We could also say that wholeness before God creates obedience. If we're going to live with like a whole sort of integrity before the Lord, that requires us to be obedient, but it also creates a desire for obedience inside of us. And so Abraham goes and does exactly as he's told. Four names. El Shaddai, God Almighty. Abraham, the father of multitudes. Sarah, princess. Isaac, he laughed. A king is going to come from this woman, Sarah. And the Old Testament starts looking toward and longing for Sarah's king. And so God makes a covenant promise to King David. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom He is the one who will build a house for my name. That's obviously Solomon. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, now we're talking about people beyond Solomon. My faithful love will never leave him, the one who sits on that throne. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. That's 2 Samuel chapter 7. The prophets are looking forward to this king. Isaiah chapter nine, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be upon his shoulders. A king. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be cast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. Zechariah 9, chapter 9, gives this incredibly distinct picture of what this will look like. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. So when you get to the end of your Old Testament, the prophet Malachi, you finish the book of Malachi, you flip one page and 400 years pass. And you're looking at the book of Matthew and it starts this way. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, king, the son of Abraham, king that came from the child that Sarah bore. And so then what happens? You get a genealogy, and most of us go, chapter two, and we just sort of like, right past that genealogy. But Matthew is just getting started. Right from the beginning, he isn't just sort of like tipping his hand to you. That's a cards reference. The coach staff that I I coach with at the high school, we love to play hearts, if you're familiar with hearts. Um, the, The most fun thing to do in the game of hearts outside of win is shoot the moon. 
that's where you take all of the hearts and everyone else gets 26 points and you get no points. And the best part of that experience is when you're sort of watching the tricks go around and you get to the point where you know you're taking all of the ones that are left and you don't just tip your hand, you just lay your cards down and you say, you lose. And it's so satisfying. Matthew here is not just tipping his hand. He's laying down all of the cards right at the beginning of his gospel. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, Judah, and his brothers. Judah, Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, Perez, Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab, Nishan. Nishan fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz by Ruth. Boaz fathered Abed, or by Rahab, sorry. Boaz fathered Abed by Ruth. Abed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. And you say to yourself, ah, kings. They came from Sarah. Then the whole next chunk, David fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah. Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers. King, 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 king. They all came from Sarah. And where does it end? Mary fathered G, or gave birth to Jesus, the son of Joseph. There's your king. And what happens? The rest of the book of Matthew, some magi in chapter two arrive from the east and they say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Where is he? We wanna see him. A man named John the Baptist is out in the wilderness preaching and he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's drawn near the end of Jesus' life. He's going to ride into Jerusalem. And where is Matthew going to pull from? Zechariah chapter nine. Listen, daughter Jerusalem. Here comes your king, victorious and riding on the back of a donkey. Here he is. And at his crucifixion, on the cross where he's hanging to die, the Roman soldiers are going to ironically scribble on a little piece of wood and nail it to that cross, here is Jesus, king of the Jews. And before he ascends into heaven, Jesus says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's the king. From start to finish, Matthew is shouting for you, this is Sarah's king. And the life of that King Jesus is supposed to show us that he is not only the fulfillment of God's side of the covenant, but also Abraham's side of the covenant, our side of the covenant, because Jesus walks blamelessly before God as the King of Kings. And in the same way that circumcision was supposed to be this permanent reminder in the Israelites' flesh of a permanent covenant. Now the nail-scarred hands of Jesus are a permanent reminder in the flesh of Jesus of a permanent covenant that's been achieved on your behalf. I said this earlier and it may have felt like a throwaway line in the middle of like a 40-minute long sermon, but I'm going to say it again. Jesus fulfills this covenant in our place and now our walking blamelessly before God is both bound up and empowered by him. You do not need to walk blamelessly before God so that you can receive all of the covenant promises. Jesus did that for you and now by God's grace through faith in him, you are in Christ 
which means you have all of the promises and walking before the Lord with integrity is empowered by him. And that's what it is to follow Jesus. He's Sarah's king. He's the name that is above every name. In fact, that's the great high point of an early church creed or hymn that Paul captures in Philippians chapter two. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking on the very nature of a servant and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His is the name that is above every name. El Shaddai, God Almighty, gives Abraham a new name, Sarah, a new name, names Isaac. And then here comes Sarah's King Jesus and says, that's the name that's above every other name. And where does the whole thing end? He's coming back on a white horse and what's written on his thigh, King of Kings. He's the King. The Bible is not just like stories kind of like disparately collected into one book. It is one story in that story is of a person who will come from the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent, and that king is Jesus. And if you're going to walk blamelessly before the Lord, it's gonna be because of him, empowered by him, bound up in him. Sarah's king is the child of promise, the crusher of the serpent, and that's Jesus. El Shaddai, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, four names in Genesis chapter 17, all pointing forward to the name above every name, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray and we'll sing. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. God, thank you for Jesus and what he's done on our behalf. God, would you give us hearts that desire to live whole lives before him, Lives that love him with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our strength and all of our soul with a wholeness that is because of him and empowered by him that's all bound up in him and would it be for your glory, God? In our seasons of painful and difficult waiting, would you remind us that you are both a God who sees us and a God who's able to accomplish for us even beyond what we would ask or imagine? Would we only ever attach that hope to the King of Kings, to the name above all names, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name, amen. If you are able, let's stand up and sing.